Good morning, church family. Take your Bibles with me, if you will, and turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 this morning. And we are going to be looking at a miracle together. And the first mention of the word faith in our book of Mark so far. So we're going to look at several things this morning together. And I pray that we'll see a clearer picture of our Savior and Messiah. Um, The title of the message is The Paralytic's Purpose. The Paralytic's Purpose. So we're going to read this morning Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 first. Uh, So if everyone would rise with me, if you're able to, in honor of the one who gave us this word, and we will read it together. I will read it together for you. And when he had come back to Capernaum, several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, And being unable to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof over where he was. When they had dug an opening, they let down the mat where the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning the way that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and pick up your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your mat, and go to your home. And he got up and immediately picked up the mat, and went out before everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And he went out again by the seashore, and the entire crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we so thankful for your grace. Um, we are humbled at the opportunity to come together before you this morning as a body that you have drawn together. I pray that we will... As a body, seek your face, seek your glory. I pray that we will repent of any sins that need to be repented of, that we will be encouraged to rest in Christ by this message, um, that we get to see him revealing more of himself this morning, and that we we will revel in the glory of who he is. I pray that you remove any distractions from me, any nerves, help me to speak clearly and to preach your word in a way that would honor you, is faithful to the scriptures, and would bring you ultimate glory. We love you and praise you in your holy name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So going through Mark so far, we have looked at several different aspects of how Mark writes. Um, The main thing that I want us to remember with this particular text this morning is that Mark focuses not on Jesus's words, but on his actions. So Mark is doing a very good job so far, if you recall, over the last few weeks. He's doing a very good job of giving us word pictures that helps us clarify and see Christ in a more focused manner. He's coming into focus the more that we read what he does. And this particular narrative is no exception in that whatsoever. Um, This is a very particular um, passage that lets us see Christ referencing himself 
in a messianic way for the first time in this book. And so we're going to see several distinct groups of characters or, or character in this particular passage. We're going to see friends, we're going to see cynics, and we're going to see the Messiah. We're going to see how these play a role together. Now you notice I didn't say the paralytic. The paralytic in, in, in um, honest um, reading of the passage plays a very small part in this narrative. There's not much here for the paralytic himself. He plays a very minimal role, but he does have a purpose. And that's the title of the message. He does have a purpose for being brought to Christ uh, in God's providence. For Christ is going to reveal a further depth of his identity. And there's a couple other things that happen in this narrative that we're going to look at. The first is going to be, this is the first of five separate engagements with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And this one, being called out for blasphemy that we'll see in just a few moments, will be the first step. This is Mark's basically starting point for the religious leaders seeking to crucify him. This is going to be what starts the process. Religious leaders are going to see this today in this text, and they're going to begin to think of a way of putting him to death. And it's going to compile on these five separate engagements that this kicks us off on. They're also going to see Christ's authority being deeper established. So last week or a couple weeks ago, we looked at Christ establishing his authority. And then last week, we looked at his ministry expanding. We were able to see him using that authority to do the ministry that he was called to do. But today we're going to see him take it to a deeper level of authority that he has uh, up till now not revealed to the people. And that's going to be what causes him to get into it, if you will, with the religious elite, elite uh, in the Jewish world. Now, I, I do want to cl clarify and, and make sure that we understand. I've, I've heard this passage, and you may have as well, and I want to push back on it just a little bit. I've heard this passage preached throughout my life uh, multiple times, and every time the general message is, be like the friends, don't be like the cynics, right? Be like the friends, don't be like the scribes. But I would argue that this passage is not so much about the friends and the scribes. This passage is about the Son of Man revealing himself, and that is where our focus needs to be. Yes, we can absolutely learn from the friends. We can and we're going to. We're going to have some application from what the friends do. We're going to learn from the scribes how not to look at everything in a cynical, sarcastic manner. But the point of this text, the point of these 13 voices, or verses, excuse me, is Christ revealing himself on a deeper level. And that's what we want to focus on. That's what we want to walk away with. And truthfully, that's what the paralytic's purpose is. The paralytic's purpose was placed here, brought by four friends before Christ, so that the Messiah can reveal himself on a deeper level. And so we're going to look at that together. So point number one is faithful friends. Faithful friends. And that's going to be verses one through five. So we're going to tackle the first five verses right out of the gate here. So I'm going to reread them to us together. Um, I'll read them for us. And we'll begin to break them down. So verse one, And when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it, would, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men, and being unable to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. They removed the roof over where he was. And when they had dug an opening, they let him down, excuse me, they let down the mat where the paralytic was lying. 
And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. So at this point in the, the Mark's gospel, Jesus has returned to Capernaum. If you remember from last week, he went out, he healed the leper, showed compassion to him, and now he's back in Capernaum. And it's interesting that Mark words it, and it was heard that he was at home. Now, if you remember with me, Mark got the majority of his text, what he wrote, from Peter. The, the majority thought is that, that Jesus went back and lived in Simon and Andrew's house. In other words, his base of operations, because we know from other texts that Christ didn't have a home, right? Foxes have dens, birds they air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so we know Jesus didn't have his own home. And what makes sense here is that Peter was explaining to Mark, we were back at home. Christ lived with us. He lived with Simon um, or Andrew and myself. And if you remember, we described Peter's house um, as a large um, square, an insular home with an interior courtyard, uh, one courtyard that, or one corridor that would come in from the street, if you guys remember that from a couple weeks ago. And thinking through this, it would have a very narrow entrance that would be very easily blocked by a large crowd. And if you remember from last week, the large crowd, because I really want to get our, our, our mental image here, the large crowd came because of the leper. Remember, the leper didn't obey Christ's command, which was, don't speak about me. And suddenly, there was such a large crowd that he couldn't even function in his mission. And so now this crowd has followed him back to Simon and Andrew's house. And likely, because they had to dig through a roof, it makes sense that Christ is in one of the rooms that are on the, one of the four sides of the big square with the courtyard probably over full with people. Couldn't get in. And so these four friends show up to give him an opportunity. They're trying to get their friends an opportunity, or excuse me, the friends are trying to get the paralytic an opportunity to be healed. And what Jesus was doing at this time is he was speaking the word to them in verse 2. And this is a common way that Mark uses uh, a brief um, synopsis to say that Christ is teaching the gospel. So Christ, Christ was preaching to them. He was preaching the gospel message which he summarized back in chapter 1 and verse 15 as repent and believe because the kingdom of God is here. And so now we've painted the picture our, our, in our minds. I hope you can see this, this large crowd shoved in. No one can move. No one can, can wiggle around. We can't even fit anyone else into the room. And now these four men carrying their friends show up to try to get to Jesus. And as they were trying to get in, they clearly came to a point where... They couldn't get past this crowd. Now, the crowd holds a very special connotation in Mark. Mark wholly lists every reference to a crowd as simply a fickle group of people that were trying to get something for themselves. If you look at the crowd overall, the disciples were something different. Those who were called by Christ, those who we would, say, we would say is converted, those who were saved, were done on an individual basis. You saw him teaching the disciples on an individual basis. But in every reference and mark to crowds, every single one, there's a fickle group of people that are looking out for their own interests. And honestly, they're completely ambivalent or seem to be ambivalent or sometimes in absolute opposition to what Christ is doing. Now you may say, what, why would the crowds be in opposition to what he's doing? Well, let's think about this for just a moment. If there was a group of people that heard the same message from Christ, how many times have we already heard 
it said in Mark that Jesus was teaching or preaching to the crowds multiple times. So they've heard the same message over and over again so far. So if this crowd is not being converted and yet still coming around over and over again, seeking to be healed, we can see a very clear description of a group of people that are looking out for their interests in this world, in this life, not in what Jesus is truly coming to share. And this becomes a completely solid argument when later on in Mark, Jesus teaches about what will happen if they follow him, that there will be suffering, that they will not have peace in this life, and the crowd disperses. Completely gone. In, in truth, it's been said that enthusiasm for Jesus and even proximity to him are not the same as faith and may in fact oppose him. So I want us to understand what Mark is telling us about this crowd. This is a group of people clearly having scribes in it that are not there for Christ. They are there for themselves. And there's a big difference there. Now, he was still preaching to them. Doesn't mean that we change our message. But how often do we see that in our world today? How many people, how many movements do we see where people are encouraged to focus on what they can get from Jesus in this life right now, not on their eternal destination, not on the purpose and message of the gospel? I think we can still see remnants of that same crowd in our lives and churches in some ways today. So what we see here is this crowd, this ones that are ambivalent and sometimes even against what Jesus was doing, now in the way of these true disciples, these true men that we're going to see have faith. This is the first mention of faith in the entire gospel. So they're going to be shown as having faith in getting their friend to Jesus. So we're seeing a clear distinction between a crowd and disciples, those who have faith. The crowds watch while disciples do. Think about that for just a minute. The crowd was there to watch, see the miracles, see what they could get from Jesus, crowd in. They're just curious, but the disciples are there to do. And the disciples I'm referencing are the four men that are coming, bringing the paralytic. And the, their action, the fact that they're disciples, is displayed in how their faith is lived out. Faith does, such as removing obstacles to get their friend to Christ. It's, it's really the faith that you would have. Uh, think, think of a, um, a miner digging for gold. I, I thought of um, in, in the 49ers, right? Everybody remember the 49ers that rushed to California when the gold rush came through? And there was these old men. You see depictions maybe in history books or even in movies. Anybody ever think of the old miner with the, the torn up hat and the big beard? And he's, he's got disheveled clothes on because everything he does, everything he thinks about is there's got to be gold and then there are hills, Right? And he has this faith that at some point he will remove the obstacle that gets him the prize that he has his eyes on. He has faith that there's gold somewhere in what he's doing, that there's a reward somewhere for what he's doing. Faith does. He has faith that it's there somewhere. And that's very similar to the faith that I'm talking about here, that there's, there's faith that brings action. I have faith that this man, Jesus, is going to be able to heal my paralytic friend. And I am so trusting that, that I will do whatever it takes. I will get sacrificed, whatever I have to sacrifice. I know that this is where he needs to be. I'm going to remove all obstructions. So when they arrive, 
they're here, they can't get in, and they go to shift to go up to the roof. And in those times, the roof had, every house had a stair, a stair uh, excuse me, a, a set of stairs, man, a set of stairs on the side of the house that would be made out of plaster, most likely wood beams covered in plaster, so they would last as long as possible, and so they would carry it up to the roof. And roofs were used for prayer, meditation, sometimes they would even take meals on them. But the way the roofs were made is they would have these, these walls built up, plaster walls, and they would have beams that would go across. You would see the beams stick out of the plaster at the top of the walls on both sides. And so you'd have these big beams in so many feet apart, and then they would fill in these gaps with smaller branches and sticks. And so you would have basically this, this several, two to three foot deep patch of bits of wood that would be as best they could intertwined, and then they would cover it all with mud and plaster. And so they would let it dry. It would keep the rain and water out. So this wasn't an easy process. So they get up to the top of the roof, and these four men, like we set their friend down, and they begin digging, and all the people underneath them are getting covered in debris. This was not a clean process. Okay, there's wood falling, there's mud falling. The people under there are probably it probably was a long process. This isn't this isn't a short. It's not they didn't pull out a, 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 a sawzall and cut it through, and here they are. Okay, so they've they've got this digging. They're they're enduring. Their faith is, I'm going to get him there no matter what. Even with the shame of going through a roof, there's actually Jewish um, writings later on of the shame of not using the main entrance. It was a sign of honor to use the main entrance. And there's this rabbi that, was, that had passed away that was so large that they couldn't get his casket through the front door of his house so they could go through their normal ceremony process. It was suggested that they would take him through the roof and instead they literally tore out the front of the house and widened the door to get him through because it was a shame to go anywhere else but through the door. And in a shame honor society, that was a big deal. So think about the shame, think about the dirt, think about the unclean level that these men are going through, the impact they're having on those in the room because they're going to get their friend to Jesus. Their faith is about doing. So when they finally get down, they finally get this roof opened, and they lower him down, likely with ropes or, or laying down and leaning down as far as they could, possibly handing him down. Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw their faith. And then he replies, looking at the man on the mat, child, your sins are forgiven. And this child in the original language has the mood and impression of one of authority. It's not a family type of child. It's, it's almost like son. If you older gentlemen may have ever spoken to someone, a male that you didn't know or wasn't your son, but called him son, right? The sign of authority. That's the connotation that Christ is using here. So he says, child or son, if your translation says that, your sins are forgiven. Now, let's hold up here just a second. Josh, I've heard you teach other places and other sermons and says that the gift of faith is something you have to have in yourself to exercise for the forgiveness of sins. It seems like here Jesus is, is basing this man's forgiveness on the faith of the four friends. Well, who does Christ address as having sin? The paralytic. The paralytic has the sin. Now, it doesn't tell us how much faith the paralytic had, but let me ask you, do you think these good friends of this paralytic would force him, if he didn't have faith, to be carried to someone to heal him? We can absolutely imply by the faith of the four friends 
that the paralytic had it as well. Absolutely imply that. There's no stretch whatsoever in reading the text that the paralytic had matching faith to those who carried him. They would not have forcibly done this to someone kicking and screaming the whole way trying to get them to Jesus. Makes absolute sense. So the level of faith here is very easily applied to the paralytic as well. But I also want us to take this from another consideration as well, is that God uses the means of his choice to bring his people to himself. His sheep are redeemed in the way that he declares they will be. And that means that, yes, God can give a group of friends an extra measure of faith where they were intercede for their friend before God. Their faith is so strong as this gift from God to bring their friend to Jesus. Now, let me ask you, do you intercede for your friends? That's going to be our application here in just a moment, but I want you to start thinking about that because this is an intercessory session here. These men interceded on behalf of their friend to bring him to Christ. And I want us to think to ourselves, is that something that I feel for my friends and family? So here we have the first mention of faith in all of Mark, and it significantly links it with acting rather than knowing, as we've talked about. True faith produces action. Now, it's interesting here that these men brought this paralytic to Jesus. We've seen all throughout the, the book of Mark here. These men brought the paralytic to Jesus to be healed. Do you think that in their minds they were going, let's take them to this carpenter from Nazareth so that his sins will be forgiven? Because that's what he needs. No, they brought him for healing. They wanted their friend to walk. And yet Christ, seeing this man, seeing their faith, used by the means of God to bring one of his sheep home, looks at the man and addresses his primary need first. Because the primary need of every human being is that their sins have to be addressed first. Must be addressed first. We can heal, we can extend life. I've heard stories of, of going through FDA approval right now that there's technology and medication to help human beings live to at least 120 years old. In the next 10 to 15 years, this technology is going to be there. I don't know whether that's true or not. I'm just telling you what I hear in my industry. And so <clears throat> we can extend these lives, but does it do any good to extend a vapor on this earth? Isn't that what the life of a human being is called, a vapor? right? It's as, as the wind blowing through, it's just gone. Here it is, one day, gone the next. Or is the true need of humanity their sins to be addressed? And so Christ looks at the true need of humanity and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is completely different than the leper that we saw last week. Last week, he simply says, I am willing to be cleansed. He showed compassion to the leper, but in this particular case, he looks to address the sins. But why is he doing this? Well, in the Old Testament, Psalm 41.4, if you'd like to write that down, I'll read it to you here. I'll give you a couple more that you can research yourself. But in the Old Testament, we see healing 
and sin, forgiveness of sin, being interchangeable. We see the psalmist writing this way, prophets writing this way, and that healing the soul and forgiveness of sin are interchangeable. So he's fulfilling the Old Testament mandate of forgiveness and healing, and we're going to see this laid out as we go through. But Psalm 41 and verse 4 says, As for me, I said, O Yahweh, be gracious to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. So healing being interchangeably used for forgiveness of sin. Jeremiah 3.22 is another example of that. Jeremiah 3.22. It reads, Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are Yahweh, our God. And of course, faithlessness meaning sin. Hosea 14.4 is another example. Hosea chapter 14 and verse 4 reads, I will heal their turning away from me. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. So I want to read you this quote that I found that I think summarizes what I'm trying to get across better than what I'm articulating it, I'm sure. Healing is a gracious movement of God into the sphere of withering and decay, which are the tokens of death at work in a man's life. It was not God's intention that man should live with the pressure of death upon him. Sickness, disease, and death are the consequences of the sinful condition of all men. Consequently, every healing is a driving back of death and an invasion of the province of sin. It is unnecessary to think of a corresponding sin for each instance of sickness. There is no suggestion in this narrative that the paralytic's physical suffering was related to a specific sin or was due to hysteria induced by guilt. Jesus' pronouncement of pardon is the recognition that man can be genuinely whole only when the breach occasioned by sin has been healed through God's forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is addressing the primary concern for this man, but it's not a specific sin. I want to make sure I'm being very clear on that. He's not saying you did X and therefore you're a paralytic. What Jesus is saying is very similar to the leper from last week in that sin causes sickness and disease. If sin had not broken the world in the beginning, we would not have sin and disease. We would not have cancer, we would not have children dying, we would not have the suffering that we have. And so in order to heal this man, his sin must first be pushed back. He must first be pushed back. We have to have forgiveness of sin to rectify our physical healing permanently. Because there is no physical healing that will outweigh the healing that is needed of sin. I hope I've made that clear from this particular text. Now, in application, I want to take just a moment. I mentioned it a moment ago, but I want you to think to yourself, church, that the, the lesson that we can take from these four friends is a good one. Again, Christ is the primary, so don't hear me. Don't hear this overshadow the primary meaning of this text. But these four friends, their faith was doing. They had intercession for their friend. So I would challenge us, I would challenge us all as a church body, as individuals, to think about your life, to think about your friends and your family. Do you, does your faith do? In other words, does your faith intercede? 
Because we are no longer to bring our sick friends and family, our sin-sick friends and family to the God-man. Guess what we have inside of us? We have the Spirit. We have Christ's Spirit within us. And our commission, our great commission of Matthew 28 is to take Him to the world. Does your faith do? Is there intercession? I would leave us with that thought as the application for this first point. Number two. Number two, caustic cynics. So we have caustic cynics. In verses 6 and 7, now the scribes have witnessed this. We've seen this huge crowd here. Jesus has said, your sins are forgiven. And in verse 6, it picks up. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So this story is very minimally about the paralytic, as we mentioned before. Now we're shifting gears suddenly. The four friends and the paralytic are no longer even the focus here. The story has shifted violently to the scribes. And they're so concerned with the words that Jesus just spoke. And it is immediate doubt and negativity. It is sarcasm. It is a pushback against contempt, if you will, against this man, this carpenter. And instead of realizing what Jesus was claiming, they said there's no way this carpenter from Nazareth. This is a no-name carpenter from a no-name town that has come here and said, I can forgive sins. How dare he? How dare he come and say this? And he was claiming to be and have the authority of God by forgiving these sins. The Jews should have recognized what Jesus was claiming. Let me show you a few passages here. Let me show you what I mean. In the Old Testament, it is absolutely proven that the only one who can forgive sins is Yahweh. Now, why is that? Because over and over and over again in the Old Testament, it is not the sins against your neighbor, although they are impactful and they do cause hurt and pain and death, but the sins against your neighbor, you don't go to your neighbor for forgiveness. Who do you go to? Yahweh. Whose law did you effectively break by sinning against your neighbor? Primarily. Yahweh. Psalm 51.4 is a prime example of that. David, absolutely, I think we can all shake our heads and go, he absolutely sinned against other people. He murdered someone, got this man's wife pregnant, so we've got adultery, we've got murder, we've got absolute justification and denial because it was likely upwards of over a year before Nathan came to him. So he's living in this happy little world of denial after doing all these things. And yet when he's finally confronted, Psalm 54, excuse me, 51.4 says, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Of course, he's referencing God. So we know and it's established that God is the one who is offended by sin, primarily. So therefore, God is the only one that can then forgive sins. Exodus 34 Verses 6 and 7. 
I'm making a case here again to show that only God can forgive sins because what Christ is now doing here is laying claim to the authority of God. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 read, Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers and the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. There's, of course, other texts that you can look at that show very, very clearly that the only one to a Jewish mind, it's the truth of Scriptures, but to a Jewish mind especially, the only one that can forgive sins is God. Not the scribes, not the priests. The chief priests had to follow a particular formula in the law on the Day of Atonement to send out the goat that he could say, God forgave you. He can't forgive you. The wording that he would use is, God is now forgiven you. So by Christ claiming this, he is in effect saying, I am God. And instead of the scribes seeing this as a claim to the Messiah, as a claim to being God, they were expecting the Messiah. There is What I'm trying to say here is there was absolutely no excuse for them to look at this in a negative fashion. There was a 70-year period from the Old Testament that the Messiah said, excuse me, that the Old Testament says the Messiah would come. It is during this time that Christ came. And yet they were more interested in casting doubt upon anyone that would claim that than they were about analyzing the fulfillment of the Old Testament to see this is who we've been waiting on. Because they had a complete misunderstanding of what the role and mission of the Messiah was. According to them, they were righteous. I don't need someone to forgive my sins. What I need is a Messiah that's coming, riding on a white horse, coming as the son of David to reestablish the Davidic throne so that we can then take control of this earth, kick off the shackles of Rome, and be free Israel once again. They didn't want the forgiveness of sins. They didn't want a Messiah who came to serve. They didn't want a suffering servant in Isaiah. They didn't understand that. They wanted a conquering king. But what they didn't understand is the king that they got did conquer, just not Rome. And so we have them calling blasphemy. And of course, the penalty for blasphemy is found in Leviticus 24, 16, which is death. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregations shall certainly stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So here we see this kickoff of the animosity of the scribes. By them claiming blasphemy in their hearts, they are automatically saying this man needs to perish. How dare he? So now we've seen a a dramatic difference between those who have the gift of faith and the four friends recognizing Christ, recognizing the Messiah, interceding for their friend and bringing him to him, and those who don't have the gift of faith. 
because they selfishly interpret Christ's actions through their own lens. So let me ask you, how do you view, as a point of application, how do you view the work of Christ in others' lives? How do you view the work of Christ in others' lives? Do you, do you look through the body of Christ? I pray this isn't this, the, the case, but do you immediately become negative, cynical, caustic or sarcastic, full of contempt? Now, many of us would sit here and go, no, of course not. I, I don't, you know, I, I, I joyfully am, am glad whenever something happens good in someone else's life. But I want you to think for just a moment, really hard, and reflect to the last time something good happens in a brother or sister's life that you just felt that twinge of jealousy. Why do they get it? Why do they get something that I don't? I'm a follower of Christ. I've been following Christ longer than them. Look at all I've sacrificed for God. Why don't I get the blessings that they have? I'm not saying anyone has particularly done that, but I know I have in my life at different times. And so I would challenge you, do you look at Christ's work and the lives of others as a, a, a building up of your faith, as a way to glorify God? Because we're going to see the entire crowd glorify God here in just a moment. Do you look at the work of Christ in others' lives as a, as a caustic cynic, or do you look at it as praise God for him working in someone else's life? What a gracious God that we serve. So I would challenge you to think about your life in that regard, because the fastest way, one of the fastest ways to sow discord and disunity in the fabric of a body of believers is for jealousy and contempt to creep in. It happens so quickly. I've seen it personally, and it will decimate a body of believers. And it must be avoided at all costs. Number three. Number three. The miraculous... Messiah, the miraculous Messiah, verses 8 through 13. I'll reread that to refresh our memory. Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to you, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your mat and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your mat, and go to your home. And he got up and immediately picked up the mat and went out before everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And he went out again by the seashore, and the entire crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So now we've come to the point where the pinnacle, the, the crux of this little text, this little passage of Scripture, this miracle here is finally going to be revealed. The paralytic's purpose is going to culminate in a crescendo of beauty. The beauty of Christ working within the divine power is absolutely amazing. And now we get to look at it. So immediately, these men, these scribes with a spiritual paralysis, we've come just off of them, and Mark takes us right into the beauty, immediately in verse 8, Jesus, aware in his spirit, knew exactly what they were thinking. He knew exactly. The spirit, the third member of the Trinity, doing the work within men, being revealed here, showing the hearts of these spiritual 
paralysis. So we've got the physical paralysis, but it's not as bad as the scribe's spiritual paralysis. So we've got these men revealing their hearts, the Spirit, excuse me, revealing the hearts of these men to Christ. And so he brings up this challenge. And I love the majority of Christ's interactions with people who challenge him is a question for a question. He asks them to think. Christians, we are called to think. Okay, little side note there. But we are called to think. Christ challenged every individual, nearly every individual he interacted with and opposed him. He challenged their way of thinking. But he begins with a question. And he says, what's easier? Well, he begins first, excuse me, by asking, why are you reasoning about these things? So he's, he's calling to, to head, why do, you, why do you think this? Which, first of all, should have made them go, what? I mean, someone walked up to me and goes, hey, man, and literally repeated what I just thought. First of all, don't want anybody in there. Nobody wants that. Second of all, huh? like, whoa, what just happened here? Okay, doesn't, it doesn't even phase them. That's how paralyzed they are. The extent of their paralysis, they can't even see that he would read their minds. No idea. It doesn't even affect him. So he says, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your mat, and walk? So which is easier, the invisible claim or the visible claim? So I, I really wrestled with this, so I hope this lands like I want it to. I prayed about it. I tried to think of an illustration that would hit all ages to really describe this, because I want us to really wrap our minds around this. So maybe even the kids can wrap their minds around this. So when I say x-ray vision, who pops in your mind? Superman. Okay, good. It's going to work. All right, so if someone comes up, okay, someone comes up right here, and they look at you and they go, I can see in that wall over there, right through that wall, there's pipes, a little bit of metal, oh, there goes a mouse, a couple bugs, okay? You can't prove him wrong. That's an invisible claim. I mean, I guess you could if you got a jackhammer and a backhoe and tried to tear some stuff up, but follow the, the analogy with me, okay? So he comes and claims... I have x-ray vision. Your first thought should be, this is Superman. That should be the first thought, right? We all, x-ray vision, I just heard it pop up, Superman. I think probably all of us thought Superman, okay? Jesus came saying, your sins are forgiven. The first thought that should have come to the Jew's mind was Christ, God, right? That should have been the first thought. But it was an invisible claim that they say we can't check that up. We can't check on that. So if this same man that came here and said, I have x-ray vision, then lit up and melted that basketball goal down, we now have a visible claim. We now can say that means the first claim has to be true because he proved to us visibly that he has laser eyes too. Superman has laser eyes, in case anybody was confused. Do you see how that applies? So <clears throat> as we see the analogy here of, of or the, excuse me, the text here, of Christ coming to claim, I can forgive sins. That's an invisible claim. We can't see that the same way this man claimed to have x-ray vision that should have told us it was Superman. And now he is saying, okay, if you won't believe that, which is much easier for me to say, but I can actually forgive sins, will you believe me if you can see this man walk in the same way that this man lit up and melted the basketball goal? 
That's essentially what Christ is doing. He's giving visible justification to an invisible claim to establish his authority before the people. So now that he's here establishing this authority, not only does he say, which is easier, which I love the the wording and the way he, he just shuts them down, but then he says in verse 10, he makes a claim that leaves beyond no doubt. It leaves no doubt to those who have ears to hear. Hear me on this. To those who have ears to hear that he is the Messiah. Verse 10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man. This is the best way to reveal and veil his identity. To reveal and veil his identity. Now, if we talked about this earlier in Mark, if Jesus had come saying, I'm the Messiah, right? He told the leper to be quiet. You guys remember our conversation? The leper was supposed to be quiet. Because if he had come and said, I'm the Messiah, here I am to forgive sins, they would have come in, the Jews would have rallied, all picked up pitchforks and swords and whatnot, and they would have said, okay, let's, let's go attack Rome. And here they went, which is not the purpose of Jesus. So he is revealing his identity to those who have ears to hear. I'd like everyone to turn with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. So Son of Man is used in the Old Testament in multiple different places. Sometimes it describes the prophet himself. Sometimes it's used as just a way to say this is a child of a human being. But sometimes, as here in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is a direct reference to the Messiah. So it is a more hidden, if you will, a more veiled revelation of the Messiah. So Jesus is using this term for a very specific reason. He is veiling the revelation of his identity. So Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14 reads, I kept looking in the night visions. So Daniel's having a vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, that's Yahweh, and came near before him, and to him was given dominion. And I want to stop right there for just a moment. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word for dominion in the original language is exousia. Anybody remember exousia? Pop quiz, anybody? Yes, authority. You guys remember that? We talked about the authority two weeks ago. It's the exact same word that Mark has used for the authority of Christ over and over to establish who he is throughout his gospel. It's the exact same thing. So, excuse me, this son of man, this son of man came and was given exousia, the authority, the dominion, but he was also given glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Can you see the markings of the Messiah there? Can you see the the fulfillment that we see that Paul writes later on, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess? that his kingdom will never end. Christ talks about establishing the kingdom that will last forever. 
So we know that Daniel 7 is talking about the Messiah. So here Christ is talking to the scribes. These men have sarcastically challenged him, who is this guy that thinks he can forgive sins? And Jesus says, oh, so saying sins are forgiven, is that too simple for you? Let me show you that I am who I say I am. Let me show you that I have the authority. Verse 10, so that you may know that the Son of Man, the Messiah, has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then he turns his attention to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your mat, and go to your home. Just like Superman lit up the basketball goal. He's proving the first point by visibly showing the second. And so now we have a revelation of Christ coming into further and more clear focus as he is now saying and doing things to establish his authority even more. We see the first instance of sins being forgiven. We see faith mentioned for the first time. Now we're seeing himself, Christ reference to himself as a specific Old Testament reference to the Messiah. He is getting more clear. And what the crowd does here is an absolute perfect response to seeing something like this, and they glorify God. Verse 12, And he got up and immediately picked up the mat and went out before everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Their immediate attention is turned to God himself. Now, why would their immediate attention be turned to God? Because every, shouldn't say every, multiple references to the Messiah in the Old Testament comes with healing of the lame. Isaiah 35 and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 6 reads that when the Messiah comes is the reference here, but then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. You think this, this uh, lame man leapt, leapt for joy after he was healed? I'd imagine so. Jeremiah 31.8 is another point in Scripture. There's more, but Jeremiah 31.8 reads, Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and she who is in labor with child together, a great assembly, they will return here. Jeremiah, of course, talking about whenever the Messiah comes, that the, the people that are scattered, the Jews that were scattered out, will be brought back in the Messiah. And the Messiah will heal the lame and the blind. It's been said the announcement and presentation of radical healing to a man and his entire person was a sign of the kingdom of God drawn near. This is a radical change. This man has not only had his sins forgiven verbally, like Jesus said verbally, your sins are forgiven, but then he backs it up by saying, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. The invisible claim has now been made visible by the second healing, the physical healing. And this was again a sign of the kingdom of God coming. Christ is coming into clear focus. Now notice, at no time during this interaction did Jesus reference himself as God. At no time. 
but we can clearly and evidently see he is referencing himself as God at every point. He's using Old Testament references. He's using healings. He's using messianic verbiage, establishing the authority. He is using everything, but saying without saying the words, I am God, he is claiming to be Yahweh. And the last verse here, in verse 13, it says that he went out again by the seashore and the entire crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. After this healing, after revealing more of himself, he simply continues his mission. He goes out seeking solace again. If you notice earlier when we talked about in Mark chapter 1 about Christ seeking solace, that he always seemed to do that after large confrontations. He always sought the Father after these times. He's going back out to seek it again. But again, the leper has impeded his mission and the crowds follow. So the crowds are following him, interrupting his solace. He's seeking the Father. But yet he didn't get upset. He didn't send them away. The end of verse 13 says... He was just teaching them. So to recap here just for a moment, we've seen the Messiah come to Capernaum. He has, as though through a veil, shared who he is so that all those who have ears to hear would hear and understand and all those who were not given the gift of faith would get a harder heart. We see the caustic cynics. We see the faithful friends. But the primary application of this last point here is I I want you, believer, to understand Only Christ forgives sins. Christ is the only hope for what ails us. We don't have a sickness, a physical sickness that needs to be healed. We have a spiritual paralysis that needs to be removed. The paralytic's purpose here is that Christ used him to show that only he forgives sin. Only He does. Only Christ can reconcile us to a holy God. And our response as a body of believers should be to rejoice at every opportunity that He does that. We should look to God in amazement, look to each other with wide eyes every time we get the opportunity to see someone else being converted. This crowd saw what this man was healed from and they immediately glorified God saying we have never seen anything like this. We should have the same excitement every time a sheep is brought home because it's that amazing. It's a bigger miracle than a paralytic getting up and carrying his mat. Being reconciled to a holy God, being brought across a chasm that we can never cross is wildly more important and beautiful than a paralytic man or a leper being healed. So I ask, believer, do you still have that same excitement about your sins being forgiven? Do you still look at those whom you know as a faithful intercessor that wants to to take Jesus to them so that we can rejoice when a sheep is brought home? 
So as I conclude, I hope that you've been able to see the difference between the paralytic and his friends, the caustic cynics, and the messianic, or excuse me, the um, miraculous Messiah. I hope you've been able to see those differences, and I hope it's bringing into focus the Messiah Savior that Mark is showing us. You remember the threefold that we have from Mark? I think it's on the screen behind us. But the Messiah Savior portion here, the authority that we see in the Messiah coming down from Yahweh, coming down from the Ancient of Days with the exousia, the authority to forgive sins is here. This is who we serve, church. Christ fulfilled the Old Testament and we are united with Him. Rest in that. Rest in the forgiveness of your sins. Rest and rejoice when we see another sheep brought home. Don't fall into the trap of the cynics looking at what God is doing in others' lives, bemoaning the fact that you may not have what you perceive to be the same as them. Rejoice with brothers and sisters in all that God is doing, glorifying Him in all that we do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word, to, to see in, in better focus the Messiah Savior that Mark is revealing to us. I pray, Lord, that we will look at the authority that he laid down, knowing that with that same authority, he has redeemed every believer in this room, that we as a body of believers can rejoice together in glorifying you in utter amazement of the very fact that you would work the miracle of salvation in someone wretched like me. And I pray, Lord, that we would rest in that righteousness and that power that you have. And that we would go into this week as intercessors, not only for each other, but also for those who need Christ. That we would be people of faith that do, and not crowds that simply observe. Let us be disciples that bring glory to you in all that we do. In your holy name I pray. Amen.